I want you to look with me on your screens for probably two very improbable passages of Scripture for Father's Day. You know, I sent out that letter, and if you did get your letter, God's really been stirring on my heart a message. And, and as I got closer to the weekend, I started putting it all together, and it just didn't work. You know, I mean, all of the sermonic stuff that I had together that would have made a great Father's Day sermon on just about any other day did not seem to adequately reveal what was in my heart. And, and, and I just thought, you know, what I'm going to say, what I want to say, is not one of those real preachy things that you say on Father's Day, but I've just had this in my heart for, for some period of time. So I'm going to ask you to forgive me in advance for not being sermonic or maybe preaching the most eloquent Father's Day sermon that you've ever heard in your life, but give me permission, if you will, as a man, as a father, and a husband to share my heart. Now, Everybody in this room can grow, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're a father or not. But my heart today is to men in general, but fathers in specific. And I want to begin to set the platform with two scriptures that I cannot get off of my mind. The first is Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Romans chapter 12 verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor or in other words, prefer one another above yourselves. So submit to one another in godly love and then prefer one another above yourselves. Well, what does that have to do with Father's Day? Historically and culturally, the male in the world has been a symbol of authority. The father's been the authority of the home, and in the past, the king was the authority politically of a nation, and now the president, which in our country came the closest ever to having a female president just some months back, but still has never had a female ruler or president in the sense, so whether it be kings or presidents, the male figure has been a symbol of authority from the home to the business to the government. And in most cases, the authority that a male wields in their position is just that. It's a a positional authority. In other words, they have it because they have a title. In many cases, they have authority because the title's been given to them, but they haven't done anything personally to earn the authority that comes with the title. My simple challenge in men in general today, and to fathers specifically, is let's, as men, godly men, Christian men, Begin to earn the right to be followed and not rest on being followed because I'm the man of the house. Or I'm the boss. Or I have this position. Or whatever our culture has told us. Instead of resting on the laurels of male authority that has been historically or culturally passed down. And I will agree that if this culture is going to change. If if the church is going to stand up and be what it's supposed to. It is largely going to fall on the shoulders of men to take the lead and be the men that God called them to be. But instead of playing the position card that I am the head of the house or I'm the boss of this company or I'm the leader of my children simply because I'm the man, there needs to happen, something Something needs to happen in our heart today that calls us to go beyond a positional level of authority and have a humility that desires to earn the right to be followed. We need to be leaders worth following. Husbands and fathers and teachers and bosses and coaches and Christian men that are simply worth following. Not simply because we fathered a child in a moment of passion 
position or because somebody gave us a title at work, but because we let God make us the kind of men that deserve to be followed. I've heard dads say, my rebellious teenagers won't listen to me. I had one father tell me not long ago that he said, I feel like a walking ATM. He said, they don't want to listen to me, but they want to come and pull the lever on the slot machine anytime they need anything. And it was a, it was a cry for help, and it was some sense of frustration about the family. And I, my question, not just directly to that father, but, but to all of us, in light of, yeah, teenagers are not going to listen most of the time. They're not going to listen a lot of the time. So, but my question to dads, instead of making it the problem of the teenagers, instead of, instead of making it somebody else's problem, have you served them lately is the question I ask all of us today. Have you preferred them above yourself? Have you submitted to your children lately in Christ-like servitude? I know it's radical that to think that a father would submit to his child and maybe that submission looks different than a child obeying his parent but yet there is a very scriptural, supernatural, biblical way that a father can submit to his child, that a husband can serve his wife, that a boss of a company can serve the people underneath him and the scripture says a lot about how those things happen and you might say to me as a dad, well yes I have served them lately, I work my fingers to the nub to give them what they want. But sir, what they want and what they need are two different things. Your love language may be buying them things and you may be scratching the itch of what they say they need. But what teenagers and children need in our world today is more than breadwinners that keep the toys coming. They need you as a person and you as an individual. They need you to lead them. They need you to lead them like Jesus would lead them. And that begins by by laying his life down for them. He didn't come to serve. He came to be served. He had titles out, uh, out the galore. But he didn't use them. He, he used the towel as a, an element of serving. And he served them. Your authority as a father is not earned simply by the fact that you hold the position. But you earn it by selfless serving. And Jesus showed us what real authority is. And real authority is not about titles. But it's all about the servant's towel in front of you this morning, and we'll get back to them later, is a, a list, uh, just a row, stacks of towels that we will apply this word to our heart with in just a moment. These are simple, not very flashy, cheap, inexpensive terry cloths that are made for washing and serving. These are not used for kings and queens. They're made for servants. You see, Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom. A kingdom that runs counterclockwise to our culture. It swims against the current of our culture. That's why truly dedicated men, Christ followers, get looked at strangely in our culture. And they often want to know what planet we're from when we prefer our wives above ourselves or we prefer our children above ourselves or we're even willing to submit and love our wife as Christ loved the church or we're willing to submit and love our children in a way that Christ loves His children. And our, our, our fellow men at work and in our world look at us like we're crazy when we choose 
to walk the love walk and walk ahead and prefer others above ourselves. We, when we lead in that paradoxical fashion, people in our culture want to know what planet we're from because Jesus came to establish a kingdom of the reverse. The kingdom you're a part of, you've often heard me say, is a kingdom where widows are more powerful than kings and a widow's two mites has more influence with God than the wealth of nations. It's a kingdom of paradoxes. It's a kingdom that you win by losing and, and you live by dying and you go up by going down. Where, where those with the most powerful authority in his kingdom are the most humble servants. And while they might have the right to throw their titles and their political weight around, their positional weight, they choose to take up a towel and serve the world, giving a paradoxical view of what leadership really is. Because this upside down kingdom of Christ teaches us that our power is created not by our position, but it is born out of a heart of genuine humility that is willing to put others' needs above our own. Jesus teaches this unforgettable lesson on genuine leading by genuine serving in John chapter 13. I started just to tell you the story and take excerpts from the passage, but I felt like the scripture tells the story better than I could. So if you'll follow along with me in John 13 or watch on your screens, listen to the story. It was It was just before Passover. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So here's the Son of God about to show these men the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to portray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer garment, His outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around His waist. After He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel and He wrapped that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter. He said, Peter said, Lord, wh- wh- are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, if you don't get this part of what I'm teaching you, then nothing from here on out. Well, you, you'll never be able to accomplish anything from here on out if you don't get what I'm about to show you. And then he said, well, then Peter... Peter said, well, then wash not just my feet, but my head and my whole body, Lord. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet and his whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you, making a reference to Judas. For he knew who was going to betray him. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher. Listen to this. He's talking about authority. You taught me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then... Right after the meal, 
This is while the meal was being served. This was, this was the scene of the Last Supper. In the upper room, they're eating the meal. He's about to take the cup and say, this cup and the bread and say this bread and do this in remembrance of me. And they've eaten the meal. He's washed their feet. They take the cup. And after the meal is over, Luke tells a part of the story that John doesn't. Verse 24 of Luke 22. A dispute rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Isn't it amazing? How you can be right in the middle of one of the most powerful moments in history when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords stoops to wash the feet of lowly fishermen and disciples and they take the cup and the bread and they go through that and as soon as that over, he walks out of the room to put the water basin and the towel back up after showing the most greatest degree of humility the world has ever seen. And then these men are arguing among themselves, who's going to be the greatest? They just don't get it. And he walks back into them and reminds them, listen, you don't get it because you've been born into one world and I'm trying to teach you about a world that is counterclockwise to the world you live in. He said in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles, the world lords it over them. Those who exercise authority, authority call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest or the weakest. The one who rules like the one who serves. For one who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves. It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. Twelve men around the table. And maybe you don't understand the environment, but in that culture they wore sandals or they were barefooted. It was dusty. There were no paved roads. And so when they came into a meal, especially in the home of a, a wealthy family, they, were, they had servants. And those servants at the time of a gathering like this were the ones that were supposed to wash the feet of those who were gathering for the meal. So as they came in the door, there was a slave or a servant that was the one with the basin and towel. And as people came through the threshold, before the meal, the servant would wash the feet of these affluent people as they came through the door. This was the work of a slave. This was the work of a servant. And so when they're eating this meal together, obviously this was not a wealthy environment. There was no slave or servant there to wash the feet. And so while the meal was being served, Jesus took the moment to teach a lesson about authority. He took the moment to teach a lesson about what it really means to lead. And so he gets up from the table. He takes the form of a servant, gets the towel, wraps himself with it, and begins to wash their feet. That's why Peter was so offended. There is no way you're going to wash my feet. This is the job of a slave. This is the job of a servant. And Jesus said to him, Peter, you don't understand. I've been trying to tell you from day one, my kingdom is a kingdom of paradoxes. Leaders serve in this kingdom. Losers win in this kingdom. Death turns into life in this kingdom. Widows are more powerful than kings in this kingdom. You just don't get it. And I want you, if I can't wash your feet and you don't get this, the future is all at stake. You'll never get anything else. He's trying to teach the principle that genuine leading comes through genuine serving and genuine humility. And the king of the earth bows down and begins to wash the disciples' feet. It's one of the most powerful scenes that we have in the scripture of what a genuine servant is, of what a genuine leader is, of what a genuine man is, preferring the needs of others above himself, not thinking more highly of himself. And if there was anyone that had the right to think highly of himself, it was the one who never sinned, the Son of God. You see, servanthood lies at the very heart 
of what it be, means to be a Christian, whether you're male or female. And in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Paul goes through several things of what it means to serve, of what it means to submit, what real biblical authority is. I read to you a moment ago Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The entire last two chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the family and the inner working relationships of submitting. And I know the old archaical version, we like to, the archaic version, we like to promote male dominance and the submission of the wife to the husband. And that verse is in there. Wives submit to their husbands by respecting them and honoring them. But it also says husbands need to submit to their wives by loving them and giving to them and being willing to die for their sake. Many men today will say what the Bible says, wives submit to your husbands. Yeah, and if you loved her like Christ loved the church, that wouldn't be a difficult thing for her to do. There's a, there's a come and go and a give and take, and it is genuinely a mutual submission. Husbands submit to their wives. It says children submit to their parents by obeying them in the Lord. It says fathers must submit to their children by not exasperating them, but instead training them up in the ways of God. It says that employees, now all of this is in Ephesians 5 and 6 on true leadership, true authority, and what it means to really be a servant of Christ. Employees need to obey their bosses because they are as if they are obeying Jesus themselves. That's what the book says. So when you, when you walk out from under the authority of your employer, then you are walking out from under the authority of God. And then it says employers or masters must treat their employees well, remembering that they both serve the same master, which is Jesus Christ. We are all under authority. Whether you're the boss or the employee, we are all under authority. So God says, treat them well, submit to them as well, serve them well, because we're serving each other as we are serving Christ. Servanthood lies at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Speaking of fathers and children, let me go back to that statement. It comes from Colossians 3. It's referenced in Ephesians. But Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. Or here on the screen, do not provoke your children that they may not be discouraged. What does that mean? What does it mean to not provoke your children? What does it mean to not exasperate your children? Well, let me give you some examples of how you can exasperate a child. Overprotection. An overprotective parent never allows their child any liberty. They have strict rules about everything. And no matter what their children do, overprotective parents do not trust them because, they, because nothing they do earns their parents' trust. Parent, children begin to despair and may believe that how they behave is irrelevant. That can lead to more rebellion. And parents have to provide rules and guidelines for those children. But those rules should not become a noose that strangles them. Above all, parents, especially fathers, have to communicate with their children that they trust them. You can exasperate your child through overprotection, but you can also do the opposite. You can exasperate your child by lack of standards. It's the flip side of overprotection. When parents fail to discipline or discipline inconsistently, children are left up on their own to make up their own mind about why it's right and wrong. They can't handle the kind of freedom and begin to feel insecure and unloved because the scripture teaches and psychology has proven that children need boundaries to feel secure. 
We exasperate children by depreciating their worth. Many children have been convinced that what they do and feel are not really that important. That's communicating to children they are not significant. And many parents and fathers depreciate their children's worth by refusing to listen to them as if what they have to say is not that important. Children who are not listened to may give up trying to communicate one day and become discouraged, shy, and withdrawn. One of the ways you can serve your children is to take time out of your schedule and pay attention to what they say. Because there are going to come a moment, and some of you already know this, and I've already been told this, not because I know, but I can already see it in my oldest child who is a great kid, but he's a teenager. And there were moments when there were opportunities to talk as a child that are less available to me now because they're more independent and their lives are moving on. When they want to talk to you as they are young, build in them the ability they can come tell you anything they want to tell you. We, uh, on occasion, in our house, we have a, a conversation, my boys and I. It's kind of what you call a dead man's talk. And whatever they tell me in that dead man's talk can't be used against them in a court of law. It's an avenue for them to come to me and share with them, and they have a card to play. They can talk to me, and they, when we talk about it, they often say, okay, is this one of those talks where I can say what I really want to say? And it not come back to get me. There is a, you can exasperate your child by depreciating their worth. Listen to them. You can exasperate them by failing to show them attention. Fathers need to communicate love to their children both verbally and physically. Dad, let me challenge you something. I don't know when's the last time some of you are very verbally affectionate. Some of you haven't because you weren't, uh, they weren't verbally affectionate to you. But I'm going to tell you to break the mold and tell your kids you love them. Let them hear you say it. Failing to do so can discourage and alienate them. Some dads ex- exasperate their children by setting unrealistic goals. My life is tied up in sports. My kids are involved in sports and I try not to do this. I, I'm conscious of it when I see it in other people. I watch dads that whether they achieved greatly or they failed miserably, they try to relive their dreams or achieve what they never achieved through their children. And you can see it a mile away when you're watching somebody else. Just make sure it doesn't get on the inside of you, whether it's academically or spiritually or athletically. Because when we set unrealistic goals for our children, we set them up to fail. We exasperate them by neglect. A father who has no time for his child creates a deep-seated resentment. And the child really doesn't know how to articulate, Dad, you're giving me what I want, but really not what I need. They're not geared to say it. They don't know how to say it. They begin to feel unimportant and worthless. And the classical example is that of David and Absalom. David was indifferent to Absalom and later rebellion and civil war and eventually Absalom's death started because of David's neglect of his son. He exasperated Absalom. We can exasperate a child by showing favoritism to other children in the family, and that's what happened in the case of Joseph. We can exasperate a child by criticism. Listen to this. One author said this. A child learns, listen closely, a child learns what he lives 
If he lives with criticism, he does not learn responsibility. He learns to condemn himself and to find fault with others. He learns to doubt his own judgment, to disparage his own ability, and to distrust the intentions of others. And above all, he learns to live with continual expectations of impending doom. If our environment is one of criticism all the time. Do you know I read that it takes nine positive affirming words to undo one critical heart-cutting word. Nine good words to undo one bad word. And as a father today, if you don't hear anything else I say today, please. When I, I underestimated last week, I admitted this. The power that a pastor's blessing has on the congregation. When businessmen came to me and said, Pastor, would you pray blessings over our businesses as you did in the past? We miss that. If, if I could underestimate the value of that prayer as a pastor, how often do we underestimate what we say as fathers and Fathers, if you don't do anything else, write a note, make a mental note, ask the Holy Spirit to burn it in your spirit. The power of a spoken blessing that comes from a father or a grandfather cannot be replaced by any mother or any grandmother or any entity in the world. There is something supernatural about the power of a spoken blessing of a father. And if your environment is one of criticism and negativity, begin to change that with the power of your tongue. The power of life and death is in the tongue and there's something supernatural about the spoken affirmation of a father we can exasperate our children by excessive discipline abusing them verbally or emotionally or physically but also indulging them giving them everything they want will soon make them restless and dissatisfied they long for guidance and direction and intimacy, not for superficial indulgence. And such indulgence will frequently create a deep-seated, lifelong resentment serving them. When I say serving them and submitting to them, it does not mean giving them what they want. Sometimes serving them in the love of Christ means saying no. The command in Ephesians, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I want to do something this morning that is really unique. And uh, my courageous middle son has agreed to help me today and um, on Father's Day. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask if I can get some help with the bar stools and the microphone. And, and um, when they get that set up, uh, I'm going to invite Gavin up this morning to help me. And I, just a few months ago, Gavin and I had a conversation. One of our really close friends that we have been close to all of our lives, all of his life, um, their family broke up. Dad made some moral choices that destroyed his life and the life of his family. And, you know, th these people are not related to us. They are close to us. And uh, Gavin, come on, man. And uh, we were in the car uh, around the holidays this year going to uh, just he and I and the truck. And uh, we were going to be where this family was, minus dad. And Gavin didn't know of what had happened in the family, and so it came out in our conversation together. And in the moment of that conversation, there was a barrage of questions from him that revealed his heart, his emotions, and for a moment, I got an opportunity to see into the window of the soul of a 10-year-old kid about what really happens 
when a man isn't the man he's supposed to be. And, and I thought, you know, God, if there was some way I could take the conversation Gavin and I had in that room as intimate and private as it was and share it on a day like Father's Day, maybe it would help some man with some opportunities that are not godly in front of him or maybe it would even help some man that is messed up in the past or maybe it would help some family to hear the profound feelings from the heart of a 10-year-old. Gavin, I gave him time to think about this. I didn't make him do this. And ultimately, he said, Dad, if it'll help somebody, I'll do it. And so that's what his motive is today, is to be honest. And, and, um, and, and he's not that talkative in front of folks. So I'm going to ask him some questions today to try to recreate. We'll never recreate it the way it was in the truck. It'll never be that intimate again. But I want to pull out some, some depth from that conversation, some things that I remember from that conversation and, um, and hopefully God will use this to help you. And I just want you, before we even get started, I have this deal with my kids that if I, and it started when I was an evangelist, that if I traveled and I used them as an illustration, that they gave me that right, but I had to pay them. And so every time I mention their name in a sermon, I owe them a dollar. And so I, uh, every time I would travel and they wouldn't get to go with me as an evangelist, they would ask me, how many, how, I'd walk in the door and their hand would be out, how many times you talk about me on this trip? And I had to pay them a dollar. Uh, and so now when I talk about them, it gets to them before they ever get home and they say, you owe me money, you use me as an illustration today. I don't, I'm going to be out big time for this because this is uh, bigger than talking about him, but... Would you just uh, appreciate Gavin for his courage today? <clears throat> Gavin, I, I know that um, this is not easy for you, so I just, just talk to me, okay, just like we were in the truck. But I, I want these folks to hear your emotions and uh, what you went through. We're going to do our best not to mention the names of the people involved. We're going to call him dad and the lady affected mom and the two kids um, you know, there were several emotions that you shared with me. You know, what, what was one of the things that you felt? Um, he said he felt nervous. And, and, and let me scoot you up to the deal. You don't have to talk right into the mic, but so that people can hear you. Why, why did you feel nervous? Because we were about to be around him, and I didn't know if I could trust him. Because of his dad. You know, Gavin said to me, um, we were on our way to meet with this family when he found out just for the holidays, and, and he said, I really, I felt nervous because I didn't know, I didn't know what to say to them, you know, I knew their life had been shattered, but I, I really didn't know what to say to them as friends. Um, you said to me you felt pressured because I told him not to talk about it. What did you say last night when I told you? Why did you feel pressured? Because I'm nosy. I like to know. <laughs> <laughs> he said he's nosy. He likes to know things. And, I, and I, I told him not to talk about it around the kids to ask me about it because they were really fresh with his friends and the breakup of their family. But this is what I know about Gavin. The reason he felt pressured, and maybe this is like your kids. Gavin, 
Gavin, while some kids hold them in, Gavin talks things out. That's how he deals with uh, pain. Is he, he almost gets chattery and he, he wants to know every detail because that's how he deals with it. So he went into this situation with a nervousness about being around them. It was awkward because something wasn't what it was supposed to be. And then I told him not to talk about it with the kids. But in his heart, he wanted to talk about it with them because he knew they were hurting. He was hurting. And he wanted to process it. So there was a nervousness and an awkwardness. Can you remember one of the other emotions? Scared. Yeah. I want to get to that one last. One of the things you said to me is that you were, um, is that you were, you felt sorry for them. Them as in the kids and the mom. Why did you feel sorry for them? Because their dad had just left the family. They didn't have a dad close to them anymore and they just had Christmas and it would never be the same. So I asked him, I said, why do you feel sorry for them? And, and he said, it's Christmas time and they're having to deal with this and will, will he be there at Christmas for them? And, and you know, this is, this is life through a 10-year-old's eyes about what happens when the world comes to an end in the family structure. He said, Gavin, you said you felt sorry for them and then you, then you said, you ask a question that let me know you felt sad for us, just our family, about what happened. Why did you feel sad for us? Because I didn't know if we could ever go on vacation. We used to vacation with this family. Uh, we were always close together. I mean, <laughs> I mean, these people are in, in our will to help it be the executor of some of the, if something were to happen with us, and, and uh, we're close to this family. And we did things together. And one of the questions Gavin asked is, will we ever get to go to the lake with them again? Will we ever vacation with them again? And it was a 10-year-old's way of realizing life will never be the same again. It was almost like it, it was the death of something. And, and he was sorry for them and sad for us as well because this is the closest person this has happened to us in our life for him at his age where he's able to comprehend it. I, I want to I go back to that um, statement you just made. Because that's the, the last thing I want to ask you. is uh, you, that, that, That's the biggest emotion to me. It was the biggest moment of this conversation we had. You were scared. Why, why were you scared? Because I was scared I couldn't trust him because he had gone to church and... Everybody could trust him. He was even an usher. And then someday he just like left their family. And then it, it made you worry about me, didn't it? What, what, did, what did you say in the truck that day? I got scared because no one, um, because I didn't know that he wasn't going to do it to us. He said, I, you know, if here's a man that was the model Christian, model businessman, from the outside, everything looked right. And he left. How do I know you're not leaving, Dad? That was the question. How do I know you're not going anywhere? And so Gavin, because he talks things out, he asked me that question. How do I know you're not leaving anywhere? And, uh, and then he followed it right back up with his own statement by saying, consoling himself, by saying, 
Well, they must have never had these kind of talks. And if they would have had the kind of talks with each other that you and I are having now, then this would have never happened. And there's some truth to that. But it was, it was a 10-year-old's way of helping himself deal with this loss and the fear. That was the greatest thing, the fear that it would happen to us. And I'll be honest with you. I told Gavin, I said, Gavin, that hurts me. And I said, I've never done anything to make you think that I would ever leave. And what did you say to me? I said that there was nothing that uh, he did to make them think that he would have left. In his view, there was no difference between this man and me. Now, because I know the situation, and I told Gavin this, I think it's Casting Crowns. You, you may have, you can help me, those of you that know it. They sing a song called, It's a Slow Fade When You Give Yourself Away. You know, people say, I fell into an affair. You don't fall into an affair, you fall into it a ditch. You make decisions that wind up getting you into those situations, and they start really slow. This man went on business trips, was a leader, an elder in our church, and um, I mean, he was just a model person. But he began to make simple, slow decisions that were minimal compromises and one thing led to another and the liberty that he gave himself led to the license for sin and before long he had made decisions, his conscience had become seared and he threw his family away. I am pressure, awkwardness, nervousness, sadness, sorrow and fear. You know, you, there's really nothing you can do as a dad when somebody that you put on a pedestal, you know, except tell them and earn their trust. And I, I really wanted you, because I felt like inviting you as a congregation, maybe to look through this as the heart of the child. I've been the child in these situations. And so the feelings that Gavin shared were so home, they felt home to me because I felt all of those emotions as a 10-year-old kid in my own life, so I know what they felt like. And because I felt them, I vowed to the best of my ability that they will never happen to my kids. But I, I wanted you to invite, invite it into his 10-year-old world to feel his emotions. Pastor Bear, I want you to come to the, to the platform, if you will, and... and team, whoever's going to help us today, and they're going to play that song, I Give Myself Away. And I want to do something, Gavin, this morning. I want to pray with you, and I want to step off to the side here, and I want to kneel down beside you and pray. Now, I'm going to tell you what I would have done this morning. I would have um, taken my towel and washed Gavin's feet today, but I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to, that would have done more harm than good. But that is the, the motive of my heart today is to submit to him. Gavin is a great athlete. He has more natural ability than I did. Anything I accomplished.